so we're one step um, we're one step closer to getting to verses one through five, but we have one more stop to make before we get there. So that will serve as a point of reference for what we want to uh, be thinking of. And but but I I do want to walk through one through five um, specifically. And, and, uh, and understand the weight of Paul's language, of even the introduction of what he's saying. And I'll give it to you just a little bit here by argument, just brief introduction, um, that, that for Paul, it, the force of what he's coming to do through the letter, let's say, what, what he's, the effect he wants his letter to have, is built immediately out the gate by, by kind of stating his apostleship. And if you were in small groups, that was one of the blanks uh, to the small group questions. What was under threat uh, for Paul? It was his apostleship was being put uh, uh, in, into, it was being threatened. Um, you notice other things that he's going to root his argumentation in saying that the apostleship that he has, and, and this is the issue with the, Judea, uh, the Judaizers on the ground in Galatia, his competitors, so to speak. Uh, those who are on the ground there, the, the, the basic argument that they're going to make, and, and we'll see this a little bit more piece by piece next week, but the argument that they're going to make um, is we were all trained out of Jerusalem. We, we all know the Orthodox faith being transmitted. We've received it from the same source. We're here telling you, Galatia folk, Folk here, Asia Minor, the Southern Galatia churches, we're here telling you the rest of the story. Paul gave you and delivered unto you what was now, as they come in, inadequate. Paul then, meeting that challenge, is writing forcefully to them. Again, it's deeply personal for him. He was the first man on the ground bringing the gospel to these churches are now particularized and formed. People have come in and said that he gave you a partial gospel. It it needs more. And his argument is going to be, I didn't receive my apostleship from the apostles. Like, my, my, my authority is not a derived authority from a man, you see that in the text, not from men, plural, nor through man, a man. I didn't receive it as is being presented to you simply by going up and speaking with the apostles at some point in which they transmitted to me the gospel and I poorly transmitted it to you. That's why when, by the time we get to chapter 2, there's the argumentation of the chronology of events. He's proving out... I didn't simply regurgitate and do a poor job of that, of what I received from a council of men. Though these men be adequate teachers, apostles themselves in their own right, I didn't receive it from them, therefore botch it when I gave it to you. I received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he he adds to that, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. You see, you have to appreciate the tone and the force out the gate of the entire Galatian project, the entire letter. It is full throttle from minute one all the way to the end. So, 
I have two questions that I want you to think on with me uh, to track the sermon this morning. Um, because I, I've now introduced verses 1 through 5. That, that, that's what's going on there. The, the, the origination of his apostleship um, um, is different than what you're hearing. It's directly from God. And again, by the time you work through the letter... When, when he says something like, I wish those people, the, the, the guys who are among you, the, the, these teachers who are clarifying the gospel for you, I wish that they would just add to circumcision emasculation. Just, if you want to be righteous, go the full distance. You know, put up or shut up. Mean it. So, so that, that's the language thing. Whoa, wow, that's kind of intense. It's graphic. It is. And he means every bit of it. Why? We have to stop and look. If we've read through the letter, we talked about the complexity of the church on the ground, where the letter came last week, various ethnicity, the group dynamics, cultural, historical elements that make it difficult for emerging church to be largely, as we're moving through a 60-year period, largely comprised of a Gentile movement that started as a sect within Judaism. There's a massive shift taking place. And there's an argument and a fight for the center. Will it remain largely Jewish in identity? We'll take the gospel announcement and pronouncement of Christ and we'll add to it the necessary Jewish components. Because remember, redemption is on the line. And Paul is saying, precisely, redemption is on the line. And to tweak it or to add to it or to subtract from it in its simple announcement, good news, is to lose it. It's not an argument over semantics and prudential judgments. It's the difference between a life united to Christ and a life that is severed from him altogether. And then you hear him use the language like, who has bewitched you? Who has caused your eyes to kind of like spin as though you are under a curse? Just eating this up, embracing this. And he says, I, I, I just can't believe it. I can't wrap my mind around it that you have so easily left the gospel that was for once delivered to you. You knew me. I was with you. You received me as I look back, even as an angel of God. And someone has bewitched you. Life and death hangs in the balance here, theologically. I have two questions for you, as then I, I, and I, I do mean it this time. It will be our last introduction to the book of Galatia, um, or the letter to the Galatians. And there are these two controlling questions. Please think on them as we enter into our time. And that is, um, number one, I, I, want you, I want you to think on this with me, please. How important is gospel truth to you? I want you to think on that. Because, again, if, if we're under the weight of the verbiage and the rhetoric of the book, the weightiness with which Paul comes, we derive from that at minimum, it means a lot to him. As fellow Christians... 
The question then as we read the book and the tone and the rhetoric. We should be asking ourselves, how much does gospel truth matter to me? And the second question then kind of flows from the first. And that is, how is this shown in your life? How is this shown in your life? How important is gospel truth to you? I have to ask this of myself. You ask this of yourselves. We're asking it as we walk through the rhetoric of Galatians just one more time. How important is gospel truth to me? The truth of it. And then, and then the second as, uh, is like unto it. How is this then shown in my life? That this matters to me. It's, it's the center gravity to how I think. As we mentioned last week, there are many cultural, religious, and ethnic challenges to an emerging first century church. And the challenge for that, as we're witnessing in Galatian, where Paul was with them and where he is now with them and what has taken place in between is with so many different people and dynamics at work, it makes laying a singular or proper foundation very, very difficult. Very difficult. Again, we often want to think of the church, that everything was clarified on Acts 2. That that all that the New Testament church believes and practices in particular ways, from the way the government is structured in a local church, to the practices of that local church, to the order of worship of that local church, and the ethos and the ethic of that local church, they just started at Acts 2 and worked forward, and here we are. But honesty reveals another narrative, another story. Things are developing through the book of Acts. And certainly from when Galatians, uh, the Galatian churches were receiving the letter around 50 AD, things were still complex and a lot of moving parts to them. Which may laying a singular and proper, true foundation very difficult to do. When speaking of laying the foundation or the true or singular foundation of the Christian church, there is really only one. And again, that's why I ask you, how important is gospel truth to you? Because if we speak of being the church, belonging to the church, standing upon the foundation of the church, we realize that to do so, to stand upon the foundation of the church, is to very exclusively be in union to that one cornerstone of our foundation. And that is being in union through faith to Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. Again, this is Paul's argument. And it's an argument that needs to matter to us as well. I say this a lot, and I I say it tongue-in-cheek, but um, I I also say it because it's kind of true. That... When we take stances, particularly me by constitution, I scream at you like every week, and you're like, wow, he just is so loud. Um, and, and then it's kind of like, because he's cranky, and, and it's kind of true. Um, but it's just by wiring and constitution. But it can come across as like just that, 
crankiness. And like, wow, that's a lot of really, uh, you know, straining out the gnat. It's really trying to be too highly nuanced and exclusive. It's really narrow-minded and altogether distasteful. Particularly in our time, and I think every generation says that. Whenever I type that line, I always think everybody says that. But I type it anyway, because it's the time in which I'm in. And I do think that now, perhaps more than previous generations and days gone by, to say that an individual experiences righteousness exclusively through the reception of the gospel of Christ is to appear at best naive in the complex world that we live in. And at worst, or perhaps pejoratively, impossibly arrogant. I'm sure if you've had any conversation about the gospel in the last year, you've felt the weight of those two responses. Dismissive, because you're naive, you just don't know enough. Your experience is too shallow, too narrow. Or um, by some of us, we receive the opposite by wiring and constitution that we're just impossibly arrogant. And in both responses, we then respond in some manner or some way to those responses we receive from others. And that response then is really governed by how important gospel truth is to us. Um, I'll read for you a comment by Bishop Robert Barron. I don't know if you guys um, listened to his podcast or, or you followed him online. I, I don't necessarily know why you would, but, uh, but he's a popularizer, a, a Catholic theologian, and, and he, he's very attractional, uh, uh, easy to receive, easy to sit down and kind of receive what he has to share. Um, so he's rising in popularity. Uh, again, an, uh, another outlet that I happen to see him on, I, I think I've only watched this show twice, but it was one of them, and that was the Ben Shapiro show. I, I saw it. It was, it was suggested to me by YouTube. Um, so I clicked on it, as we all do, whatever suggested. Um, so the next video up made sense for my searches that I would watch the Ben Shapiro show with uh, Robert Barron on it. And it, and it, and it kind of surprised me, quite honestly, um, to hear a, a, a Catholic theologian of such um, high standing, and, and he serves alongside out in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. It was interesting because he was asked... Who could be saved? And you can find this if you wish to Google it or search it, and you can watch the interview. I think the whole thing lasted maybe an hour. But again, the point that like stuck out to me is this question of who could be saved. Think about it in light of Galatians. Not someone way off the weeds or an easy, low-hanging fruit, an easy target. We're talking about um, uh, Bishop Barron, a very likable guy. Who can be saved? He went on to assert that Catholic theology allows for salvation uh, for sincere atheists and others outside the Christian faith since Vatican II. 
That was for you history folks, uh, 1960-62. Think of that for a moment. How important does gospel truth matter to you? It matters to Paul. How much to us? Asserted that Catholic theology allows for, the the generosity allows for salvation for sincere, again, it's located not in your faith where it terminates, but the heart and the emotions. For sincere atheists, perhaps not the insincere kind. And others, whoever they may be, outside the Christian faith. How do we get there? Because the reasoning is that Christ is only the privileged route to salvation. Think of of that. Again, I don't mean to be cranky or or too highly nuanced or overly detailed. We're dealing with the, the, the center of gravity of Christian orthodoxy, what we call the good news. How much does it matter to us to understand it comprehensively, to prize it, even if it's within our own life and family. And then if we lightly and gingerly interact with it with others, how much does it matter even to us that we understand it and that we get it right when there are other offerings? Do you know the true offering? Or do all offerings seem even-handed and fair? Are they all equally good in that they are news indeed? But are they good news? All of them equally. Baron is saying, yes, they're all evenly good. Now, there is a distinction. Christ is only the privileged route to salvation. In fact, Catholic theology allows them to tell a devout follower of Judaism that unites right with the book of Galatians a devout follower of Judaism, that he is in, quote, good shape if he followed the law and his own conscience. That is absolutely, substantively no different than the Galatian heresy. There's relevancy for you. That you'd say to someone, based on your level of sincerity and just how bad you mean it, no matter what you're committed to, if you're committed, you're all right. Paul's saying, they're absolutely not all right. You're not all right. And yet it's exclusivity of the gospel for Christ, the gospel of Christ, for righteousness before God, which make the very arguments of the book even relevant. In other words, if righteousness of life is offered among men and women through various means, whether it be sincerity of atheism, eagerness of Judaism, or missionary work as a Mormon, again, if... if, These various means and various theologies offer evenly and equally righteousness of life. Then the entire Galatian controversy is no controversy at all. We would only be able to read the book and say Paul is 
way over the top. He is making all kinds of rhetorical blunders. In fact, he's uncharitable, unkind, and unloving. Because he is making a theological mountain out of nothing, even close to a molehill. And you would have to respond that way, don't you see? You'd have to respond that way. It's the only way to go next. If all roads lead home, evenly, then, then he, we'll study the book as an overstatement in Christian orthodoxy. So I ask you, how important is the gospel truth to you? If you were to read such a, such a thing from Bishop Barron, or you to read or, or listen to a podcast that states equally the same, or you hear a friend that says, I think what you're doing is perhaps the, the uh, privileged pathway, but I think what everyone else is doing is a true pathway. How would, it respo- how would you respond to that? What would you think? How do you think right now? Is salvation really just a hierarchy of ideas? You see, I don't mean that in our apologetics, and, and perhaps, and, and I could learn here, I, I'll admit, that in our apologetics, tone, rhetorical movement, angles of argumentation certainly need to be carefully thought through and A certain diplomacy is helpful if it's attached. I think the wise saying does work. You get more bees, I think, with honey is the idea. I I, I think that's fair. Diplomacy is a way forward. Articulation and taking one's time. Understanding the person, the constitution you're speaking with is all important an aspect of the presentation of the gospel. But presenting the gospel, we must. It can't be that the nuances are provisions for us to hide the actual substance of truth. That it's always just more complicated than that. And it's so complicated, we just don't address it. And it's so complicated, our own consciousness unsure of it all. The entire letter to the Galatians would be a statement in overstating the Christian tradition and the meaningfulness of the gospel if that were the case. At root, in the Christian faith, and I, I mean at root, th- this is the question that each man, each woman, each individual has at some point, and the Christian faith answers this through the announcement of good news of Jesus Christ. At root in the Christian faith is the question, and then the provision of the answer to that question regarding righteousness. I'll give you three questions just briefly that kind of outline the central assessment or the central announcement of the gospel, that it addresses these questions that each of us have, men and women have innately as we grow through life. We share in these questions and these larger questions about righteousness. And it is this, quite simply, how is a sinful person justified before a holy God? Now, again, in our day of corporate identity, 
it's really hard to stay with the simplicity of individual announcements and individual receptions. Everything is corporate now. Um, 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 corporate, uh, corporate guilt, corporate victory. Everything kind of is, is much broader and narratival. And, and so it's hard to get at the, the, the singular propositions that still stand for an individual man to answer, an individual woman to still come to grips with, an individuality of one's union. We speak of, of, of corporate union. We speak of the church's union. But, but, but there, there can't be a church's union without an individual that belongs to said church in union. There is still what stands for the conscience of a single man. What stands for the conscience of a single woman. Between him or herself and their creator. The question of how do I, Adam Thomas, a sinful individual, my own individual behavior and my own individual sinful inheritance from my parents, how do I, Adam Thomas, a sinful person, become justified so that I might stand before a holy God and not be consumed? How? That is a question for an individual person to ask and need answered. It wasn't more pressing in another time than it is in our time. Another question would be, from where does this righteousness come? How is a sinful person justified before holy God? From where does his righteousness come? That, that is for me, Adam. Where, where, where if, I, if I don't share innately by birth in righteousness, that I might stand before a righteous God and not be consumed, from where does my righteousness come? This is the root of the Christian orthodoxy. This is the root of Christian faith. This is the center of gravity of the book of Galatians. A third question that speaks to the root of Christian orthodoxy. And I ask you, again, how important is gospel truth to you? How do you prize it? How important is it, and how is this shown in your life? How does he remain in a state of righteousness once he is made or declared righteous? Is it a tenuous righteousness? Is it partial? Is it given in different degrees and in different kinds? Is it the same quality, essentially, from minute one all the way to the end? Can it be undone by my own continued unrighteous behavior? Because maybe, again, along with the Galatian heresy, maybe it does appeal to me. Maybe it does make sense to me that indeed faith terminating on Jesus is all at once what I need. But that begins to wane across my pilgrim's journey. And maybe it is fitting for me to add to that singular faith. Elements that help my conscience cope. Help me to give something tangible to calculate. To, to take the glass that just like now over several years through faith, my faith is kind of waning. 
my, my righteousness then is probably starting to wane. How do I fill in that gap to give me something of a surety about my righteousness? How can I be assured that I'm altogether declared righteous at once and it remains throughout? You see, Paul wants to decisively establish the righteousness. Decisively, and and that's why I say rhetorically he is very, very heavy-handed throughout the book, throughout the letter to the Galatian church, because he wants to decisively establish the righteousness that comes through faith. That righteousness is received, not attained, but it's received. And it's received through the empty vessel of faith. So it's not the quality of the vessel that ascended to attain the righteousness. Therefore, if the quality of the vessel begins to wane, so does the righteousness that it brought to me. We have to remember, it's not the quality of one's faith that unites one to Christ. it's, It's not just the quantity of it, how much I had, how sincere I was, but it is altogether the quality that it terminated on him. Paul wants to decisively establish the righteousness that comes through faith so that we may know the difference between the righteousness that comes through faith and all other kinds of righteousness. There are numerous kinds of righteousness available to all of us. Paul is trying to drive us in the Galatian church back to a singular righteousness that comes only merely through faith. Other kinds of righteousness that we may think of today for ourselves. There is a political righteousness, no doubt. If you turn on, no matter, I don't care what channel it is that you receive your news thread through, the self-righteousness that is promoted through any news feed is um, palpable. It doesn't matter the thread. News and politics is moral, and you're righteous as long as you have the right ones. There's a political righteousness. Paul is laboring for us, and for the next several months, he'll labor that we might recognize the establishment of righteousness comes through faith, in contrast to all other kinds of righteousness. It is not the rock to stand on, is political righteousness, ceremonial righteousness, cultural righteousness, social media righteousness, environmental righteousness. And yeah, of course, religious righteousness. It was alive and well in the Galatian heresy. Religious external righteousness, attained, not received. Paul is helping us understand righteousness solely comes through faith passively. It isn't attained to actively. To such forms of righteousness, Luther comments, I think this is helpful. Christian righteousness is to be distinguished from all others. 
for they are contrary to Christian righteousness. Do you see, that's what Paul is getting at here. It's not another form or an amended kind. It's in contrast to Christian righteousness. There is a Christian righteousness. And I don't mean it by virtue of being a Christian. I mean offered through faith to those who believe. There is righteousness found in Jesus Christ. And all other forms are contrary to this form. Not complementary. They don't fill up what is lacking. They are contrary to. Luther goes on to say, both because they proceed from laws of earthly rulers, traditions of men, self-working, because they consist in our works and can be achieved by us through purely natural endowments. And here Luther touches on a very important piece as we kind of work toward the conclusion of our time together by way of introducing Galatian heresy. Listen to this last part of what he said. They are contrary to Christian righteousness because they can be achieved with purely natural endowments. You see, think of that for a moment. That is a critical piece of understanding the gospel. Righteousness, which can be achieved by natural endowments. You as a person, the gift of constitution you've been given. The strength of it, the weaknesses of it. The argument of other forms of righteousness is if you just employ that constitution you've been given toward the right directive, you can attain what you need most, and that is righteousness. You can attain to it. You can achieve it by being a better version of yourself. Naturally, your, your giftedness, your skill set, your persuasiveness, your attractionality, your intellect. If you employ these natural endowments, you can attain to true righteousness. Perhaps you can attain it through just taking rigorous legalistic steps in your life, micromanaging your naughtiness so that you can achieve some form of ascendant righteousness. If I just become more ascetic in my life, if I just say no to just the right things, if I just say yes to just the right things, I can exceed to achieve righteousness. You see, the problem with that is the gospel announcement that no one is righteous. No, not one. There is nothing that belongs to you, as Paul will describe. There is nothing that belongs to me that innately can transcend our sinfulness that belongs to us. There is nothing that we can do that will amount to righteousness before God. All it will achieve for us is righteousness before each other. Thus, the gospel of Christ announces the provision of an alien righteousness. You see, the problem is not outside of you, which is the declaration of the gospel. The problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. The solution is outside of you and comes to take up residence within you. What belongs to you naturally is sinfulness. 
Therefore, you cannot amend your way through strategies into righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says this. This is Paul articulating it in a different book in the same truth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin. You see, he took upon him who knew no sin what belonged to us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the solution is outside of us and must take up residence within us. Remember the argument on the ground as we close. Next week, we will jump into the book full throttle. Remember the argument on the ground in the book of Galatia is that you can achieve a natural righteousness. How often do you think that of yourself? That you can. How often do you feel that way? That you kind of can. Because you're looking at fellow men, fellow women. And as long as you can find a common denominator that is lower than you, you've ascended. The righteousness that we need comes from without. It is the very foundation of the Christian faith. And it is what is at stake in Galatia. Two questions in close. How important is understanding this gospel truth to you? And how is this shown in your life? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments to consider the need for righteousness and our unrighteousness, our need of you and your alien righteousness to provide. I pray that you'll guide our time through this wonderful book, the book of Galatians, that you'll enable us to understand our need, hear it fresh. For those of us who are participant in your gospel now in union with you, that you'd help us to better understand it, be equipped to give an answer for it, and be once again washed and renewed in it. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. Give you just a moment of thoughtfulness there. Invite the worship team up.